January 2013. New Yorker, wife and mother of two, Sarai Sierra, 33, was murdered while holidaying alone in Istanbul, Turkey. Sarai's murderer was tracked down as a result of a manhunt and sentenced to life in prison. This is Sarai's story. Sources for this episode include The Hurriet Daily News, The New York Times, CBS Local New York, The New York Daily News, Narratively, The Washington Post, The BBC, The Daily Sabah, ABC News and Old Dominion University. Hello listeners, welcome back to episode 14 of Unknown Passage, a podcast that tells the stories of missing and murdered travellers abroad. So I've been churning out the episodes. Um, That doesn't mean that my research is lacking at all. It just means I'm doing kind of later nights um, and more work when I should be doing actual work. But I'm really enjoying it and I hope you are too. I think it's good to get a few episodes out of the way during lockdown for people um, and just to have a bit of a backlog for new listeners as well. And if you're a new listener, welcome. I just want to open up this episode with a few quick notes. Um, the first one is it's if you've listened to the episode about Max Castor, episode 12, the Swedish traveller missing in Australia. Um, I was saddened to log on to Facebook today and just very strangely see a new post on the Max Caster Facebook page, a family friend advising that Max's father, Rolf, who I mentioned quite a lot in that episode, has actually died last week. Um, I was really shocked, especially the timing, considering I'd, I'd just posted it and he died probably around the same day I posted that. Um, I really hope that there is another life after this one so that Rolf can hopefully get the answers he was looking for. I also just want to say thank you so much to listener Eva in Sweden. She's really been listening since episode one and she's such a cool source of information. She is a social worker over in Sweden and she messaged me to say that she'd followed Max's case for quite a long time and that she'd often seen Rolf posting in threads and forums looking for Max because he never really stopped. And over the weekend, she actually took time to translate so many of Rolf's posts in Swedish into English and send them over to me in a Word document. And then today I sent her a message um, showing her the post that Rolf had died and we just kind of got chills because it was it was such strange timing but also just sad. Um, and, yeah, my heart goes out to Rolf's family and friends Um, secondly, thank you so much for all the, um, new, I guess, new listeners, existing listeners who are listening. It's so cool logging on and seeing where you are listening from and then getting messages on Instagram. And the other day I got one from an expat. Um, I think he's living in Japan at the moment and he'd found my podcast. He doesn't have Instagram, but he emailed me to say how much he's enjoying it and how many times, um, he had kind of thought he dodged a bullet overseas and it just kind of shines a light on, you know, what's lurking out there and the possibilities. So thank you, George. That was really lovely to wake up and see that email. 
This episode I'm doing about the murder of Sarai Sierra. She's an American who was murdered in Turkey in 2013. It is my second solved episode that I'm recording. The first one, if you haven't listened to it, um, I believe it was episode 10. The two European backpackers, Louisa and Maren, who were murdered in Morocco. Every few episodes I'm going to be doing a solved case just to break it up a bit and to kind of reach out to the people who listen but once in a while like a case that has a full circle and has a bit of closure in it, whatever that means I suppose. Um, Just a bit of a trigger warning for this one. This one does discuss violence against women so if that's kind of something that upsets you or you don't think you can deal with, um, maybe hang out for the next episode kind of at the end of this week. So with all that being said, let's get into it. So Sarai Sierra, she was born Sarai Jimenez, I believe it's pronounced, or Jimenez. I'm not sure. I think it's Jimenez. And she was born on November 9th, 1979 in New York City. So she was a fiery Scorpio woman and I am the daughter of one. So I know who we're dealing with. Um, Sarai grew up in a deeply religious, close-knit family and they kind of survived on a modest income Her mother said she wasn't a girly girl and early on in her life she kind of said, no, I don't want to do ballet um, and I don't want to be a ballerina, I want to be a teacher. So at the time of Sarai's murder, she was 33. Um, She was a native of Staten Island, New York. She had always lived on Staten Island. Her Um, She was married to Stephen Sierra and he was a New York City bus driver and they'd been married since Sarai was 18. So really like as soon as she was legally able to get married. Together they shared two sons, Sion and Silas. Now I'm not sure exactly what Sarai's background was. I couldn't find it but I believe um, obviously based on the name Jimenez she's um, you know, uh, Latin American or Spanish American descent. And, you know, she grew up into a really striking woman. She had long hair. I've seen different photos of her. It's colored different. She had big dark eyes, um, a really beautiful smile. And there's one particular photo of Sarai that seems to kind of dominate stories about her. That's just a really beautiful photo. It's really captivating. And I'll post it on the Instagram. It's, she's essentially, sadly, she's kind of dressed how she was on the final day of her life, um, I noticed. But she's got a cap on. I'm not sure if her hair's tucked up into it. She's got a leather jacket on and a scarf around her neck. And she's looking up and she it's just a striking photo. I've looked at it a lot today um, and yesterday looking into this. So upon meeting her future husband, Stephen, and getting married, for a time they moved to the state of Michigan where they had their two boys and then when their boys were young, they returned to raise them in New York on Staten Island. In 2005, according to the New York Times, Sarai filed for bankruptcy due to credit card debt and the New York Times stated that in these court records for her bankruptcy filing, she was actually listed as separated as her marital status and unemployed. But 
Her family and husband deny this and there's no evidence that they were at all separated. So it's really strange. After her bankruptcy filing and kind of getting back on her feet, Sarayu worked part-time as a receptionist. Now, it was around this time in her early 30s that Sarayu really kind of discovered what she was really passionate about, and that was street photography. So Sarai joined Instagram, which is a photo sharing social media platform in 2013, and she accrued a few thousand followers. She was tech savvy and switched on and really talented. And during this time, she was also a part-time student at the College of Staten Island. I'm not sure what she was studying. It said in a number of articles that she'd done different courses there since the late 90s. But I believe that she was studying photography. Um, Sarai, through her Instagram account, which happens, she had a lot of online friends that she met who were all kind of into the same interests as her street photography. Um, These were male and female friends that she mostly met through Instagram. She had previously met up with people she'd met on Instagram and they'd taken street photos together. A fellow street photographer who had gone out on a shoot with Sarai in New York told the New York Times, quote, she had honestly no fear wherever she went, unquote. Now, just a note, Sarai's Instagram is still live. Her family used to occasionally put up a post on it, but it's kind of been dormant for a few years now, um, which is a bit sad, but, you know, it's it's probably a, a bit difficult to keep posting when she's been gone for, you know, seven years at this point. But if you want to check it out, it's got a lot of her posts. It's it's sad because the captions before her family took it over were obviously written by her and they have a lot of excitement and promise. It's at me, myself, underscore Sarai. And this Instagram was really her little space to document her street photography and to connect with other people. So I really kind of implore you to check it out. Sarai had never left the USA. Obviously, she'd got married young. She'd had to mature really early and then she raised sons. So she'd always kind of been homebound, really. And, you know, as often happens as women and men get older, they kind of think back on the things that they want to do and they haven't yet done. And they, she decided to take a solo trip to Turkey. And the point of this was to take street photos because if you've ever seen the landscape or any photos of Turkey. It's an incredible, beautiful, majestic city, an ancient city, um, not city, country, sorry. Um, I'm talking about she was going to Istanbul in Turkey. And, you know, it's just, it's the perfect place to take street photos. And most of Sarai's trips before this had only gone as far as upstate New York or to Michigan. And so obviously being a hardworking mother of two, She wanted to have a bit of, you know, her time to herself, which I'm not a mother, but I was raised by a single mother and, you know, it's the hardest job in the world. And, you know, understandably, Sarai wanted to spread her wings a bit and explore and probably just have some time to herself in peace and quiet. She needed a break and she vocalised to her friends and family that she was going on this trip with a friend of hers um, who she'd known for a long time. So apparently people 
on Instagram that she'd connected with had put the idea of going to Turkey in her head because they said it was such an amazing place to take photos. And the friend that was initially meant to accompany her, I believe her name's Magdalena, not Magdalena, Magdalena, she had to pull out at the last minute. And instead of cancelling like a lot of people would do, Sarai was like, no, I'm going by myself if she can't make it. I'm just going to go. And that's such a ballsy move for someone who's never really strayed far from home. And, you know, I just think that says a lot about what Sarai was like. So she booked a room kind of in the centre part of Istanbul in a safe area on Airbnb. And her friend Magdalena, who couldn't go, but um, in the end, but, you know, spoke to Sarai and probably told her, you know, go and have a good time. She said to KDVR, quote, she did a lot of research about the area, about where she was going to stay, the safest places to go and the time of day to travel, unquote. Now, Sarai's brother, David, he was pretty worried about Sarai going to Turkey on her own. I think mainly because it was Turkey. I think if she was going to another city in Europe, maybe it would have been a bit different. But he said, quote, we were nervous. We were like, always be mindful of what you do. Be aware of your surroundings. Don't get too comfortable to the point where you drop your guard down, unquote. David also said, quote, Sarai's passion for photography and love for capturing the beauty we see in culture, architecture and scenery was her reason for travelling to Istanbul, unquote. Before I get into the details of Sarai's trip, I thought now was a good time to break to talk a little bit about Turkey. So Turkey is a country with a population of about 82 million people and it spans about 770,000 square kilometres and the leader of its government is a president. So Turkey is really, some people refer to it as Europe and some people refer to it as the Middle East, but it kind of borders the two. It's one of the most westernized countries of that region. And the capital of Turkey, I actually learned something researching this. It's not actually Istanbul, it's Ankara. And despite Turkey's reputation, I think a lot of people instantly think that it's dangerous, just, you know, the vibe that they get. It is actually mostly safe for tourists, but in the last few years, Turkey has seen a rise in terrorist attacks in large cities. However, most of these attacks don't target tourist hotspots. They mostly target government organisations. The political situation in Istanbul in particular is rather unstable and petty crime is what most tourists to Turkey can really expect at the worst to happen to them. Turkey shares a border with Syria, so travel to this particular side of the Turkish country is kind of warned against, obviously. Now, according to the World Bank, Turkey has a, quote, emerging market economy, unquote, and it classifies it as an quote, upper middle income country, unquote. Depending on whose statistics you read, um, but I think it goes without saying, Turkey has a pretty serious problem with violence against women. 
The Washington Post stated that in the year before Sarai travelled there, so 2012, 165 women were murdered, 150 were raped, 210 were injured and 135 reported harassment from men. And those are just the reported crimes. I really doubt it's 150 rapes. I believe it's substantially more, but we're talking about a country where coming forward and reporting a rape, it's women probably don't feel comfortable um, coming forward and reporting it. It's not like in Australia where it's pretty kind of you seem, I guess, comfortable coming forward and reporting it. Um, Not comfortable. It is difficult to report, but there's just a lot of political and gender kind of expectations in Turkey where it's just not really something that you'd feel comfortable doing. The Washington Post also states that, quote, 42% of women in Turkey have been physically or sexually abused at some point in their lives, unquote. And this unbelievable statistic is what most people actually think is a conservative figure. So it's a lot more. 42% of women in Turkey have been physically or sexually abused at some point in their lives. So coverage of, you know, the other murders of women in Turkey, you know, as as well as Sarai, and I'll get into that later, it usually takes a backseat to kind of um, other news in Turkish Turkish media. They're more likely to report on political issues than they are of murders of women. Drug use, theft and murder in Turkey has risen 400% in the last decade. But Noma.com states that the real worst spike in crime was between 2003 and 2012 and it really peaked around the time Sarai travelled there. In 2018, Turkey reintroduced this concept. They're called watchmen. I actually just found this article talking about what they were and it wasn't in relation to Sarai's murder. It was just in relation to um, Turkey and its safety. So watchmen, they were something kind of of the past. And in 1991, the Turkish government decided to get rid of them and try to modernise themselves. But they were essentially kind of lower rank police officers that were uniformed police and they patrolled the streets at night and a lot of people called them night watchmen. Um, so in 2018, they actually reinstated them because of the issues with crime, especially in the capital, in the major cities and the capital city. And as a result of this, it's it's really kind of I kind of applaud them for doing it because there's been a huge decrease in all kinds of crimes from burglaries through to murder. And this article that I found also cited that the watchman had been responsible for finding almost 5,000 missing children. And that was quoted by the Daily Sabah newspaper. So they actually located like kidnapped children or trafficked children as well, which is like astounding. And, you know, maybe other countries should have watchmen as well. So I have a few friends who have been to Turkey. I, when I worked in travel, um, as a travel agent, my 
kind of my first boss there, I suppose, she was a really kind of independent solo female traveller and she said the two places that she'd hated the most that she'd ever been to and she'd been to like 100 countries um, had been Turkey and Lebanon and she said because she was blonde they literally reached out and grabbed her hair and pulled it and harassed her, yelled at her on the street, catcalled her. Um, And this is kind of a common thing that I've heard from people. I haven't been to Turkey and I sure as hell would not be going now with what's going on in the world and kind of the proximity to areas where you can be kidnapped um, into Syria and things like that. It's just I wish that I had gone when things were less volatile, but it's like Egypt. It's just not a place I can see myself going, especially not by myself. Gender expectations in Turkey are pretty strict and this kind of extends to what they expect of you when you travel there, as with a lot of countries. Um, Women are generally advised to wear conservative clothes with sleeves. If they're going into a mosque, they're expected to wear a head scarf and a long skirt and covered arms, which is totally acceptable. Men are expected to wear trousers um, and a shirt and you know, I think it can be a short, short sleeves shirt. Um, Turkish people are some of the kindest people in the world and some of the most generous. And it's really kind of down to how you treat them in their country, how they're going to treat you. It's not advised when you speak to someone from Turkey in Turkey that you insult Turkey, the Turkish people or Islam. Um, That's generally what people tell you to do. Just be kind and courteous, which I think you should be doing anyway if you're going to someone else's country. Don't get into political conversations while you're in Turkey. Um, Don't talk about Cyprus. Don't talk about Kurdish separatism. And don't talk about the Armenian genocide, which is still kind of a hot and button topic for them over 100 years after it happened. According to the website World Nomads, if you touch on any of these topics in Turkey and you get a thumping for them from a local, you can't expect the police to help you um, because the local will just say what you said and then the police really won't care too much. Another tip from World Nomads um, about Turkey that I found interesting says that if you're going out to a Turkish nightclub, you shouldn't wear the colour combinations black and white, blue and yellow or red and yellow, as these are the combinations of the three biggest football clubs in Turkey. This won't so much put you at risk for violent crime as it will for football hooliganry, as they said. Um, And a bunch of drunken dudes at a bar will probably lay into if you wear these combinations without even realising you're wearing them. That part reminded me of um, in Scotland, in Glasgow, they've got the, um, I think it's pronounced Celtic, not Celtic, Celtic and Rangers football clubs. And they're both from the same city, but they'll, you know, give you a Glasgow smile if um, they get into it with you. So, Also, it goes without saying, don't walk alone at night in Turkey outside of busy kind of well-lit tourist areas. And there's always cabs around and it's advised to get cabs. And for the most part, Turkish people are just extremely proud people. They're like a lot of nationalities. They're proud of their country. Um, They're proud of what they offer. And 
reporting a crime will more than often, um, if you are, say, um, ripped off by someone or scammed by someone or assaulted by someone, if you report that to the police and they get them, generally the result is that the perpetrator will be incredibly sorry that they did that because um, they come down pretty hard on them. Um, Turks don't like tourists having a bad time there and um, they don't like people kind of ruining tourists trips there so to speak so I think I just thought that would give you a little glimpse into a little bit about Turkey probably 0.00001 of anything you could say about Turkey so now we'll get into Sarai's trip to Turkey. On Jud on January 7th, 2013, Sarai flew into Istanbul, Turkey on her own. And really, we don't have a play-by-play of what she was doing, but we have kind of the broad strokes. So she was meant to be gone for about two weeks all up from America. So while in Istanbul, we know that Sarai met up with friends she had met through Instagram and her photography profile. And a couple of them that she met up with took her around to kind of hip cafes and fascinating city streets to get shots. She continued to post to her Instagram during this time, which you can kind of sadly see on her Instagram that's still up. And she Skyped with her husband, children, family and friends regularly during this time. Now, in a fact that will be heavily reported later and I guess by new sources that were trying to shine a bad light on Sarai or question what she was doing. During the time that she was in Turkey, she actually flew to Amsterdam for a kind of mini break in between her break to meet a man that she had met on Instagram, I believe. Um, And she also, when she was in Turkey, met up with a man that she'd met on Instagram who lived in Turkey Amsterdam is a few hours flight from Turkey. So she kind of took a little domestic flight in between. And I think she had like one day layover by herself in Munich, Germany as well. So that ate into her time in Turkey a little bit. But from what I could tell, I think her husband knew that she was going to be taking this little trip in Amsterdam. As a result of this fact about her travels, upon her death, rumours flew that Sarai was a drug smuggler as well as a cheater. The Turkey to Amsterdam route is a really well-known drug smuggling corridor, so that's what kind of keyed people off to that theory. But there's zero evidence that Sarai did any drug smuggling and there's no way that I think she did either. In a later statement to um, news stations, uh, one of the Turkish men that had met up with her and she had met on Instagram, he stated that their friendship was purely platonic and that there's no way that Sarai was a drug smuggler. And during that time when she flew to Amsterdam, the man that she I think she slept on his couch in Amsterdam. He also stated later on that they were purely friends and that Sarai's husband, Stephen, knew that she would be couch surfing at his. He told the New York Times, quote, taking care of her meant showing my city and being a good friend to her. She had a wonderful time here, unquote. 
On January 21st, 2013, it was Sarai's final full day in Istanbul before flying back to New York City. She had spoken with her sister and her husband, Stephen, gave a quote to CNN saying, quote, the last thing she said was, I'm coming home tomorrow. And she was excited and put a little smiley face at the end of her statement, unquote. So for her final day in Istanbul, Sarai had a lot of things she wanted to see. Her main thing was she wanted to go to the Galata Bridge, which is a well-known landmark that tourists visit, and this spans the Golden Horn Waterway. Essentially, Sarai's husband reported her missing when she didn't return to New York City the following day on her scheduled flight. He first called her hotel, her, well, her Airbnb room, and he learned that all of Sarai's things were still in her room, including her passport, which obviously straight off the back bat is really concerning. Essentially, the minute that Stephen reported her missing, um, the police actually jumped into action, which is really heartening to see. And it was almost two weeks um, before they found Sarai's body. And during these two weeks, hundreds of police and investigators looked at as much CCTV and surveillance as they possibly could from across Istanbul. And they did a really good job of tracking down Sarai on quite a lot of CCTV. They were able to piece together quite a lot of her movements, but they really came up cold when it came to any really good leads. She was seen on a number of days, mostly alone, exploring the city. You can see a few of these if you look her up on YouTube. And I'll also put it on her page that I'll create after I post this on unknownpassage.com. They found the very last footage of Sarai that they could find. And it was the day that you know, um, she was due to visit the Galata Bridge and the day before she was due to fly back to New York. This footage you can watch on YouTube and Sarai is essentially, she's walking through what is really a food court um, in a mall. I don't know what you call it in other parts of the world. And she's wearing jeans and a leather jacket and a cap and it's quite a similar photo to the really famous photo that you'll see all over of Sarai. And there's something about this footage, it, it really like got me, like more than maybe any other footage of her family crying or looking for her or anything like that. And I can't really put my finger on why, but she walks through with like her tray of food and she goes up to a table and I think all the tables are taken and I think she asks someone if she can use her table and she kind of takes this two-seater table and pulls it out a little bit and she just sits there, she sits down and she puts her tray down and she takes her bag off and puts it in her lap and she's kind of isolated the table to herself and she starts eating and she's just, it's just sad. She's just really alone and I'm sure she was enjoying being alone and, you know, not having an answer to anyone, but it's just sad that she didn't know what was about to happen. Soon, her husband, Stephen, he boarded a plane to Turkey and he and Sarai's brother, David, they joined the police searching for Sarai all over Istanbul, which would have been impossible because Stephen, I don't believe, had ever left the United States and suddenly he's in this 
really exotic country in a country he knows nothing about trying to communicate with police. It's pretty much what the families of all the people I cover on this podcast go through. And that's, that's kind of the thread that binds them all together. And, you know, the, the search for their loved ones and just on completely foreign terrain. So Stephen told his sons with Sarai that he was going to Turkey to make sure that Sarai got home safely. And in an ABC News interview with Stephen after Sarai's body was found, he's just, he's sobbing. He's he's like, he's sobbing like he's got like snot coming out of his nose when you just can't stop and you can't get your words out. And it just, oh, it was so difficult to watch. The FBI were in Istanbul to assist on the ground in the search for Sarai. So unfortunately, after two weeks of searching for Sarai and following up all these loose ends, the search for Sarai ended on February 2nd, 2013. It was in the poor seaside neighbourhood of Kankurteran and Sarai's body was found essentially along Istanbul has these ancient city walls that kind of surround it and she was found along one of these city walls near Suraburnu um, beneath Topkapi Palace and that's according to the Harriet Daily News. According to a piece by Narratively, her body was actually stuffed into a cavity in the wall. And if you look at it, it, I, if you're interested in this case, look up some of the news footage of um, the search for Sarai because you can see this wall and kind of visualise it a lot easier. And there's these kind of deep crevices in there. And I believe she was stuffed into one of these. And that's why someone hadn't come across her sooner. The cause of Sarai's death was found to be blunt force trauma to the head and obviously Sarai had been missing for two weeks um, and she had been dead for that entire two weeks. So between the decomposition of her body and the trauma to her head, she was almost unrecognisable. Her phone and iPad were found to be missing but weirdly she was still wearing her earrings and a bracelet According to ABC News, and this fact isn't discussed anywhere else except for on this news segment I found, and I I just think it's a bit strange, but then again, maybe there's an easier answer to it. Sarai had an extra pair of shoes with her and they wondered why when they'd found her body, but then no one ever brought it up again. Maybe she was going to be walking somewhere, I think, where she thought that her shoes might get a bit wet and she took a pair of dry shoes. Or maybe one pair was walking shoes and one pair was like comfortable shoes to go and sit and have a meal later. I think that's probably just a a female thing. Her husband, Stephen, identified her in the Istanbul city morgue and he said that he could only identify her because she had distinct arches of her feet um, and her face was so severely beaten and mutilated that he actually couldn't identify her from her face. Sarai's body was flown home to Staten Island soon after and this was long before the culprit was found. Her funeral service was held at her childhood church in Staten Island and she was buried on Staten Island at Silvermount Cemetery. 
Stephen told the New York Times that he explained Sarai's death to their sons as, quote, I told them mummy got hurt and she died, unquote. As a result of being told this, her older son, Silas, he smashed a lamp in the house and he said to Stephen later, quote, but I was still nine, she get, didn't get to see me turn 10, unquote. Ah, oh, getting a bit emotional. So in a beautiful, what I think is a beautiful crowdfunding measure, Sarai's family actually sold a number of her photographs to pay for her funeral and they raised enough to pay for her funeral. Um, additional profits went to raising her two young sons and this website is still up and selling Sarai's photos as stock images or just if you want to buy one and frame it. It's at 20, so the word 20 and then the number 20.com. I'll add this link to Sarai's page on the Unknown Passage webpage because I actually really want to buy one and frame it because I actually love her work. So the investigation into Sarai's murder then heated up once they had found her body and they knew that someone had murdered her. The Istanbul police questioned 21 suspects that they'd narrowed down over the murder of Sarai and they took blood and DNA samples from each one of these people. Apparently two of these suspects were actually women. They'd actually found DNA under Sarai's fingernails and in her hair and apparently the condition of her fingernails was pretty bad and that suggested she fought for her life. CCTV footage was obtained and it's very blurry and you can see stills of it, but she was essentially walking around a coastal area of the city and then later on she's caught on really blurry CCTV near the city walls and it's so blurry, I don't know how the police did it, but they did an incredible job of tracking this person down, but they've actually kind of put arrows to where Sarai is walking and then probably a couple of metres behind her, somebody else is walking and that's what they had to go off. So eight whole months passed before the murderer of Sarai Sierra was tracked down and I believe it had to do with the fact that they caught this person on CCTV not long after Sarai went missing and he was selling her jackets on the street. And this is a quote that I found on an article by Narratively, but it's not mentioned anywhere else. I believe he was trying to sell her leather jacket and I think that's what they're alluding to and that he must have taken it off her body before he fled the scene. But when they found her body... um they never mentioned that she was missing a jacket. So I'm just piecing this together. But it is weird that he didn't take any of her jewellery, but he took the leather jacket to sell. The police searched for this person. Um, and once they found him, and they've kind of remained tight lipped about how they actually tracked him down. But I think they had quite a few people dob him in who knew about him. Um, they found this monster and they took his DNA and it confirmed that he was Sarai's murderer. Sarai's murderer was Turkish national Zia Tisali. Um, I'll refer to him as Tisali for the rest of this episode. He 
was at the time of her murder 46. And if you are 46 and you feel old, look up pictures of this guy and you'll feel a whole lot better because I would honestly put him at maybe 70. Um, He probably looks 20 or 30 years older than he actually is. And I don't know, my grandfather used to say beauty is skin deep, but ugliness runs right through to the bone. And I think that's, that really comes up time and time again in my life. <laughs> um, so to Sally, he was an itinerant paper collector and petty thief. He had no um, set address. He kind of just wandered around. They had a record of him because he had prior convictions for burglary and weapons violations. And let me tell you, if you look up pictures of this guy, he is a empty vessel of a human being. And if you watch his confession video that they may, I think over there, they like in a lot of countries, they make them film a confession and admit to all of it because they really rely heavily on the confession. This guy is just, words are coming out of his mouth and his eyes are just empty, like he's a sociopath. He blinks heaps and he's just saying it like like he's reading, like, I don't know, he, like he's reading the phone book. It's just nothing to him. But he soon confessed to killing Sarai Sierra. In that video interview that I just mentioned, he did that with a Turkish news site immediately after they arrested him. Tasali essentially outlined what had happened that day. Um, he had been sniffing household chemicals to get high and kind of wandering around that area on the day of the killing. And he said he didn't remember it, but for someone who didn't remember it, he had a hell of a lot of details in the next breath of something that he clearly didn't remember. So on the day that um, Sarai went missing, she was walking along the old city walls taking photos and Tasali was following after her. He then said that he basically caught up to her and he tried to kiss her and he said, quote, she resisted me and a struggle broke out between the two of us, unquote. According to his statement, um, Tasali said that Sarai hit him with her phone, which was in her hand, giving him a bloody nose. And I love that detail. He knocked her down and she fought back and she picked up a stone, which was kind of within arm's reach, and she slammed it into his head. And he said from there, he just went off. He said, quote, I got very angry and hit her back twice with a stone I grabbed off the floor. He said, he then said that she stopped moving. So Sarai really put up a fight and, you know, good for her. And I, when I was watching this news kind of interview where he confessed, he said one other thing which I copied from the closed captions I watched and it really pissed me off. It said, quote, the woman confronted me. I did not confront her because I was drinking there, unquote. So I don't know what the fuck that means, but he's actually kind of saying that she went up to talk to him, which trust me, look up a picture of this guy. She did not. And I believe that she was probably walking pretty quickly to get the hell away from him on that last blurry footage we have of her. I don't think she was looking to make friends with someone who was sitting in the essentially in a really isolated grassy area drinking household chemicals or sniffing them and getting high. 
So Tasali said that he left her body there and then the next day he returned to the scene. He said he covered the body with blankets and then he took her phone and her iPad, which she was walking around with when she crossed paths with him, and he took it down to the seafront and he threw it into the sea, which, I mean, that shows a fair bit of premeditation because he must have known that they would track those at some point. So for someone who claims that his body is so kind of pickled by household cleaners um, and his mind, he seems to have a fair bit of, um, what's the word for it? Oh, I can't think of it. There's a really good word that the guys from, oh, from that Bob Ruff uses on his podcast. So he said that he actually thought Sarai was a was a Turkish woman, and that's probably the only part of his statement that I believe because I actually think that Sarai would have blended in pretty well in Turkey. She's got a look that she could easily be a number of nationalities. Um, quite like Annie, quite like Annie Ashikian actually. So he said that he just thought she was a Turkish woman until reports began appearing on the news about this missing American tourists. And I think then he started to freak because he himself knew that they were putting a hell of a lot more work into finding the murderer of a tourist than they were a local woman. And that's when he starts to take his, um, countermeasures, that's the term. Um, so he actually confessed that when the police found Sarai's body on February 2nd, 2013, he was actually really close by. He was only a few yards away from the crime scene. So that really ties back into when police and investigators say that serial killers or offenders always return to the scene of the crime to kind of keep tabs on what's happening. He's a prime example of that. He told prosecutors that he regretted killing Sarai. So essentially after he killed her and he then returned the next day and covered up her body and got rid of her mobile and her iPad, he flew, He fled Istanbul because he knew that I think if he stuck around, they would be hot on his heels pretty quickly. He then crossed the border into Syria and according to him, he fought in clashes with Syrian rebels, which I think is... Um, probably a major lie. I don't think he looks like he's capable of fighting. I don't know why he would add that detail in. He doesn't look like someone that they would want to recruit. I think he was probably just hiding out over the border, hoping that, you know, they wouldn't find him. He then said that he decided to return over to the Turkish side and surrender because he got shot in the leg. And I've never seen any proof that he's been shot in the leg or anything or it's mentioned or his injury or anything. The head of Istanbul's security forces, his name's Hussein Kapkin, he said that Tasali had not handed himself in. He said that he had been captured after an extensive manhunt along the border. So I think they knew who they were looking for. They were hot on his heels and they caught him and he's kind of spun this yarn to make himself sound a little bit more edgy and interesting. So as a result of his murder of Sarai Sierra, Tasali was charged with murder and thankfully he was sentenced to life in prison. 
he was given a mental health evaluation before his trial and they deemed him sane to start trial. Initially, Tasali was not charged with sexual assault or theft, but he was only charged with the murder of Sarai. He received life for the murder, but it gives me a lot of hope because in 2019, so only last year, he was actually put on trial for those additional charges of sexual assault or theft. There's no evidence of what the sexual assault is. They haven't disclosed that. But the theft, I imagine, is the iPad and the phone and the jacket. So he was retried in 2019, so six years after he had murdered Sarai. And the Turkish courts actually gave him a further seven years and six months for the sexual assault and four years and two months for theft. So that's incredibly impressive. Um, he got a bigger sentence in a country that is supposedly more backward when it comes to women's rights than the country I live in. But a man who outright killed his wife and lied for a year to the police and the news and everything and was essentially caught red-handed, he got six years in prison last year. So let that sink in. Turkey does not have the death penalty. I looked it up. They haven't executed anyone since 1984 and they actually abolished the death penalty in 2004. But this guy, I think the death penalty is like way too good for. I like to think of him in a Turkish prison kind of, I was picturing him in a prison similar to kind of, if you've seen Midnight Express, I hope, you know, he goes kind of, um, like that guy did. He stated, quote, it is true that I killed the victim, but I did not rape her. I did have, I did not have such an intention. I request my acquittal, unquote. And that's what he said in his sexual assault hearing before he was found guilty. Um, something tells me from that, that the kind of morally to a lot of people over there, rape is they deem it in their mind worse than murder of a crime. And he just didn't want to go to prison as a rapist because the prison pecking order exists all over the world, essentially the same. It's better to be a murderer than to be a rapist or a pedophile. So unsurprisingly, um, Sarai's murder saw many people turning around and pointing the finger at the murdered woman herself for the choices she had made that they saw led to her murder. People took to forums, people wrote opinion articles, um, even the Turkish police, which, I mean, up until this point, I kind of had respect for them, how they handled it, but they really did make a lot of comments throughout the investigation and the subsequent trial that where she was travelling, where she was walking that day, what was she doing by herself? And a lot of people made comments about her leaving her husband and children behind in New York, talking to people online, meeting people online, staying with men in other cities, meeting up with men in other cities, walking around um, an unsafe area. The list goes on and on, and this always happens in cases. Um, I'm not going to comment on her life choices. I've made way worse ones. in my life. Um, And look, for 15 years, she had been a wife and a mother since she was 18. She'd never had a 
college or university experience. She'd never backpacked Europe. She'd never done any of those things that people do in their late teens, early 20s, into their 30s. And in my opinion, she deserved to do that. And I think even her husband, Stephen, understood that from what I can tell. It doesn't seem like he had any issue with her going by herself. She was meant to be going with a friend. She didn't want to waste the money she'd already spent. Her friend couldn't go anymore and she went and she was keeping in touch. And I think he understood that she had given up a lot to be a mother and a wife. And he was, you know, saying go. And I really, I really like him. Like from things I've watched, I think he's a decent guy. So all these articles, they really implied that being married and a mother indicated that that's the choice that Sarai had made and that's what she should be doing. So I just find that Sarai finding this passion for photography into her 30s and deciding to pursue that, that's so inspiring. And I'm coming up on the age that Sarai was when she was murdered and I just think that it's empowering and inspiring to see a woman who was finding new things that she enjoyed doing and ways to express herself and ways to reclaim a bit of her independence into her 30s. So, and if you're a woman and you're listening and you're fearful of traveling alone, I've done most of my travel alone. A lot of women I've known, most of them have done most of their traveling alone. And don't let stories like this deter you from going out there and experiencing the world. So the aftermath, and this might make you feel a little bit warmer and fuzzier at the end of what is a really difficult case to go into. So Sarai's childhood friend, Magalina, she was the one who was supposed to go to with Sarai to Turkey, but she had to pull out at the last minute. She felt terrible. I've seen photos of her sobbing, um, talking about it. And I just, it just made me so sad. She couldn't have predicted what was going to happen. So Stephen relied initially on help from family and friends to get back on his feet and to work through his grief. And he was suddenly raising two young sons without his wife. He himself said that Sarai had done everything for him and his boys and he didn't know how to do basic things like to care for them. She had been the backbone. And I think when she was gone, the reality, like with a lot of men, it really like hit him. He was really deep in grief. Like I think he thought that he would never pull himself out of it. And Sarai's childhood friend and single mother, um, she had one son. Her name's Dulcie. She, I think it was a few months after Sarai was murdered, Dulcie rang up. She got hold of um, Stephen's number and she rang up and they were kind of living on handouts at this point because Stephen had had to spend all this money going to Turkey to stay and track down Sarai and everything. And um, obviously he's a bus driver. He's not a multimillionaire. Um, and the family was really helping and they were probably really lo- running low on money. So Dulcie rang him up and she offered him some of her son's clothes that his son had her son had grown out of. And a few weeks later, she dropped them off. And the rest, I guess, is history. He found, you know, a second soulmate really in Dulcie. And 
he fell in love with her. And when I first read that, before I really looked into the whole story, it was one of the first articles I read, I was like, oh, um, I didn't know how I felt about that <laughs> because it was um, they got married not right on a year after Sarai was murdered and at that point they were really close to having a new baby. So um, I think she got up the duff pretty quickly after they got together. But essentially his eldest son, Silas, had told him to marry Dulcie and that he missed having a mum and he basically said um, in a really grown-up way that his dad should do the right thing and marry Dulcie because they loved her. And the photos of Dulcie, she just exudes um, warmth and positivity. So a year after Sarai was murdered in Turkey, her husband Stephen married Sarai's childhood friend Dulcie and um, they had a baby boy. So he has his two sons with Sarai. She had one son from a previous relationship and they have a little baby together who is probably now a little boy actually. Um he said to the New York Daily News, Stephen, he said, quote, Dulcie means sweet and she is, unquote. So it's really kind of bittersweet because Dulcie had run into Sarai about a week before she went to Turkey. She hadn't seen her for ages. They'd kind of come in and out of each other's lives um, when they had kids and then they wouldn't see each other for a while and then they'd see each other again. And she had her mum in the car, so she couldn't really stick around to talk. But Sarai was telling her about this upcoming trip to Turkey and Dulcie kind of had to cut her short because she had her elderly mother in the car. And she was saying how just terrible she felt. Um about cutting her off because she didn't know how w- the, their lives would turn out and that Sarai would be murdered and this would bring her and Stephen together. Um, the rush, I guess, with the baby and marriage and stuff, they're really deeply religious, these families, um, and living together before marriage is a no-no. So, And I just wanted to add this really sweet little part from the New York Daily News about them. Quote, when the family moved in together, they discovered each owned the exact same table. The two pieces of furniture now sit side by side in the dining room, a space big enough for the new family of five. The tables fit together perfectly, unquote. So Stephen said to the New York Daily News as well, um, just kind of, I guess he felt like he had to justify his choices, which I really don't think he did because I think this is a really beautiful, bittersweet ending. But he said, quote, the Lord showed me that he wants us to move forward. You have to know in your heart when it's right. I remember asking Dulcie, are you ready for this? And she said immediately with no hesitation, it would be an honour to raise the sons of my friend Sarai, unquote. So if that doesn't make you a little emotional, you're dead inside because I feel really teary reading that. So just to wrap up this episode, the Turkish police, I feel like really went above and beyond to find Sarai's killer. And I was really surprised reading about the investigation because I honestly did not think that a country like Turkey would go to the lengths they did to look for the killer the killer of a female tourist. Um, I do wish that local women got the same attention, but at the same time, I understand that tourism is a huge driver and maintaining good diplomacy is really important. And this is why a lot of countries put a lot into 
looking for people missing in their countries. I hope Tasali dies in prison um, and I hope that he doesn't die soon. I hope his life is long and tormented. Um, it seems that he will die in prison because I believe life is life in Turkey. There's no discussion of parole. Um, and I do hope that the prison that he's in is as bad Um I think that he really knew what he was doing. I hate the fact that he seemed to justify it by saying he was just trying to give her a kiss. I don't know what the fuck he thinks he is or who he thinks he is, but I enjoy the fact that Sarai fought back and hit him and I hope even for a tiny second that hurt. As I said, Sarai's work, her prints are still available to purchase. Any funds that they raise um, go to her sons and raising them. As I said, I'd like to do what do so soon and get it framed. So um, I'll be using some Patreon money, I believe. Um, I'm going to have to look into how much they are, but they're essentially just, um, they're just stock images that they're selling them on Getty Images. I believe, and they're also selling them on a separate art one. So I'll leave links to those on Sarai's page on unknownpassagepodcast.com. Sarai's obituary is available at legacy.com and findagrave.com. And you can leave a message on either and a virtual flower on findagrave.com. As I said, I'll put up some videos of Sarai and Sarai's family on her page on the Unknown Passage podcast website. My heart goes out to Sarai's family, friends and sons. No amount of time will kind of lessen the pain of losing their mum, but the bittersweet ending made this story a little bit more tolerable to tell. And I honestly believe watching videos of Stephen and Dulcie and their boys and this big new blended family, I actually feel that Sarai would be so happy to see that Dulcie is doing such a good job of raising her boys. Stories like this shouldn't deter women from travelling solo. We just have to sadly be aware of our surroundings and stick to well-trafficked areas. I don't know if that will ever change in the world. I doubt it. But it makes me so much sadder knowing that Sarai was just one day away from returning home to her boys and her husband and she'd had such a beautiful two-week trip, the first time she'd ever been overseas. And it's almost like fate that she crossed paths with this complete monster by pure chance, really on her last afternoon in this exotic country. So that's the story of Sarai Sierra. I hope that you enjoyed this second instalment of the Unknown Passage Solve series. As I said, I'll be doing a solved episode every few just to give you one that has, you know, a full story that wraps up at the end, no matter how sad it is. I find these ones more difficult because, and more upsetting because you have the details of how they died, missing people, you don't have all those details. There's a lot of speculation, but these ones, it's it's different to kind of just reading an article about someone, really digging deep into articles and looking at so many pictures and watching so many videos. For a little moment in time, you feel like you know the person and you think of all the things that they won't get to experience. So follow Unknown Passage on Instagram at Unknown Passage Pod. If you want to email through feedback or case suggestions, albeit it may take a year to get to your case suggestion, um, 
send them through to unknownpassagepodcast at gmail.com. Visit the website at unknownpassagepodcast.com. If you want to become a Patreon, I've got a $2 tier and a $5 tier at the moment. There's no requirement to be a patron. Just keep enjoying these for free. Um, go to patreon.com slash unknown passage podcast. And yeah, I don't really have anything else to add. I'm not sure where the next episode will take place. It will be a missing one. I've got a few that I've pretty much researched. Um, so yeah, if you know anyone who likes missing persons slash true crime slash travel podcasts, that's how I'm, that's how I'm categorizing it. Recommend my podcast. Um, it's amazing how just in like, I think it's been six weeks. I've had so much good feedback. It's so cool. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. So until next time, interact with me over on Instagram. If you don't have Instagram, I'm not going to be getting Facebook. Facebook is a toxic cesspit of racists. And I don't think that, um, I don't think that, um, my podcast category, I just can imagine the comments. So that's why I'm not taking it over there because I'd, I'm a, um, I manage social media for a number of overseas clients and, Every day of my life, I remove racist comments, literally just go through and delete them from their posts for literally no reason. They're, one of them's a food. Um, they just make a food <laughs> and people write F this, F that, F you. Um, so, yeah. Anyway, I will see you soon and thanks for listening. Okay, bye.